through, through 24 is our, our verses for today. Let's bow our heads and pray. We've got a, quite a bit of a, a, t- a task in front of us, quite a bit to chew on in our scripture, so we should definitely ask God to, uh, to help us out with this. Father, first of all, we thank you. We thank you for this nation, that here we are a couple hundred years later gathering together in your name, that we get to sing songs to you, that we get to open your word freely, that we have this crazy ability to set our own course, to be captains of our own ship, to be able to lift ourselves up to, or not, to be able to stand on our own two feet and to try and figure out what that means. And there's an amazing gift that you have given us, and please help us to be good stewards of it, to know how precious this place that you have given us is, and to use it to love those around us. Father, we have your word open in front of us. We're asking that you bless this time that we have together. We are seeking your wisdom. We are seeking your face. We are seeking your blessing. So please open your heart and your mind to us as we have your word open. We ask all of that in the commanding name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in John chapter 5, verses 16 through through 24, as we're, we're going to, to stop, uh, maybe a little bit after that. Derek did this a, a few weeks ago on our fifth Sunday, where he did the, the first part, and we're actually going to jump back a little bit. So if you have your page open, we're going to go back to the, the Pool of Bethesda, just to set the scene a little bit for where we are in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. It says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom it pleases to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Amen. This is one of the hardest passages. There's a lot of things in there, isn't there? A lot of father, father, son, son, who does this, who does that? It's going to take us a minute to plow through this. We have, I don't know if you, in your, in your bulletins there, make sure you have a bulletin. There is a ton of scripture references. We're going to try and break this down, but there is a lot of meat here in this, this passage. And it's crazy, a lot of times when Jesus does this, immediately after this, he'll pull the disciples aside and he'll give them an explanation of what he means. 
We don't have that for this, which means that it should be fairly clear to us what he's saying. Well, let me tell you, I have spent a lot of time studying this, and I will try and break it down, but there's just a ton here, and the language isn't exactly clear, but it will be, I promise, shortly. So we'll start off with our, our history thing, but one of the things that we're going to gain from today, what we learn from this, is we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot about, about Jesus. We're going to learn about his character, his authority, but I want this word to stick out in your mind, relationship because we're talking about the Trinity. We are really diving into specifically the relationship between Jesus and God the Father, that portion of the Trinity. We're neglecting the Holy Spirit for this, and I apologize, because they are equal. That, that is doing a disservice to the Trinity. When we talk about the nature of the Trinity, you're talking about God as one, God as three, and the way that his threeness is different from his oneness, and we really don't understand. We can put a lot of bad metaphors at a lot of bad similes. I, I, I love them. But we're not going to do that. But we are going to specifically look at the unique portions of God the Father, God the Son, and their relationship, the things that they have in common. That's really the juxt of what John is talking about here. He's really laying that on to us. And we're going to break that down into five aspects later. But that relationship is what we are focusing on. And I want us to think about how this changes our perspective in the world. This is the application part of it. So much of our lives, we spend so much time looking at the world from us, from our perspective. How does it affect me? How does it affect my family? How does it affect my job? How do these actions, how do these events, how do they affect from a me perspective? And we use that as a tool a lot. We put ourselves in someone else's shoes because that's our usual perspective is from ourselves. So I can say, well, if you're like me, we're pretty similar. I'm standing in your shoes. That event happened to you. I can understand how that has affected you. We're not going to do that for this. And I really want us to get away from doing this as a whole. I want us to get more to a God-centered point of view. That point of view that when we look at events in the world, when we look at things that happen in our lives, we look at things that happen in other people's lives, look at God's actions and how it affects God and how it affects our relationship to God. To use a, a poor metaphor <laughs> is to think about a time when we thought that the, the universe revolved around the earth. We believed that for a long time. And a lot of our science was still fairly accurate when we look at our measurements, we looked at the seasons, the cycles, the clocks. All of those things worked even though we had something fundamentally wrong about our understanding about the universe and how things worked. We had to shift our perspective, though, to understanding that the sun is the center of our solar system and that the planets revolve around the sun to get to a deeper understanding of how things work in our universe. That's exactly what we're trying to do, is we're trying to shift our perspective to a more accurate perspective so that we can have a deeper understanding. In our history portion, John tells us, if we go back to verse 1, if you just look up the page, he says that the, the, Jesus and the disciples have gone back to Jerusalem for a festival. He doesn't tell us what festival it is. We can make a, a guess that it's probably one of the three major festivals, Passover or, or Tabernacles or Weeks, one of those three, but we're just guessing. John does this where he doesn't give us things that are, are going to distract us, that are going to pull us away. It's not germane to the story. The location is important, the events are important, but the festival that they are there for is not important. Clearly, 
John goes into detail about where they are in the city, though. He tells us in detail exactly where they are. We've got a map we'll put up here. They're in the northeast corner of the city. You can see the temple there on the, on the lower right. And then you can see the pool of Bethesda up top. If you would open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, it tells us exactly where this is on the wall. And then you can see we've got it circled on the map. It says the pool of Bethesda. Now, this pool is described, it's fairly unique in, in how it's described. It's described as having five sides, having a five-sided pool. That's a unique shape. They've actually dug this up. They know where it is. It's an archaeological site. You can go there and visit. But what it was, was actually was a rectangle. It was a large rectangle pool with a wall down the middle. And John tells us that it had five porches. That's the unique features. It's five-sided. It had five porches or porticos that were around this pool. Nothing really to know about that except for the fact, like I say, that you can go there. You can go to this place. After, you know, remember, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. During the Crusades, they actually came back and built churches over the top of these pools. So when you go there now, they have restored the foundations of those churches in the spot where this is. So you've got kind of mixed archaeology when you, when you go to this place. But the point is to say, again, that this is a real place. This is a real event. This is something really that happened to this guy. That word Bethesda, it means house of mercy or house of grace. The word that probably comes to our mind mostly is Bethlehem, right? Most of us know Bethlehem. It's, it's a house of bread. Same etymology of that word. But the point of this is, so this guy, the, this gentleman that's been paralyzed, he's waiting at the edge of these two pools. And his theology isn't exactly sound. He's picked up some part of, of Roman um, occult, almost, in his, in his theology. See, Jews couldn't bathe in stagnant water. That was not considered clean. So you needed moving water. That's why you have two pools with that wall down the middle. The well would spring up in one, and then it would pour out into the other. They think that the water was probably kind of a reddish color, probably had some iron in it based on the, on the way the geology is in the area. And the, the belief was that when that water was stirred, when that fresh spring would come up, they believed that, and this is kind of a, a strange thing, when the Romans believed that the, the, the nature gods would stir the water and that had healing properties. The Jews translated that to mean the angels. And there's, if you look in your, in there, some of your translations will have verses, half, the second half of verse 3 and the first half of verse 4 are in italics. It's because those are not in the oldest translations. And it talks about how the angels stirred the waters. And that's what created the healing properties of the pool. Those were probably a footnote written in the margins of this part and then eventually added into the main part of the text as the second half of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. But it doesn't change our understanding of the belief of why they believe this healing properties of this pool. So this guy, he's paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know whether it's from illness or whether it's from injury. We don't have any re idea exactly what caused him to be paralyzed. But he has been paralyzed, and he has been on this mat waiting at this pool because the belief was that when the water would be stirred, there was an angel stirring the water, and if he could get enter it, if he could be the first one to enter, that he could receive healing. I say his theology is not sound. But I want us to go back to another pool. If we were to go to, uh, to John chapter 9, that's where Jesus meets the blind man, the guy who's been blind from birth. 
And he goes to that guy, and remember, he spits on the ground and mixes the mud and puts it on the guy's eyes. And then he says, he tells him to go to another pool to wash, the pool of Siloam, and then to present himself to the temple. And we can imagine at this pool, the crowd, the crowd of the sick people that are waiting for the ripples in the water. They're competing to be the first so they can receive healing. And Jesus goes into this crowd, and he picks out this guy who is invalid. The scripture tells us he has been sick for 38 years, and we don't know how old he is. We don't know um, you know, if this is, you know, if he's been injured or sick since he was a kid, or if this happened in middle age, we really don't know. We do know that he is not a Christian. He has no idea who Jesus is. He does not have faith in Jesus, and we will not know if he ever gains faith. It's not in the story. We know his theology isn't sound. There is nothing in the Old Testament that supports what he is doing. There is nothing that says that there is healing in the pools of Bethesda. You can go through the whole Old Testament. There is nothing to say this. But there's a lot of people that have come to this occult belief in the healing power of these pools. So Jesus approaches the guy, and he asks him what he wants. And the man, he says, man, I, I don't have anybody to carry me down to the water when the water is stirred. That's what he says to him. He says, I just, I don't have anybody. And I think he's trying to get Jesus to maybe be that person to carry him down. But what we learn, we learn something about Jesus right here. Because Jesus says, you're healed, pick up your mat, and walk. See, God is sovereign. I use this word a lot. He is sovereign. He has complete command and control over everything. He created and sustains everything in existence. So we really want to change our frame of reference to put God as our, as our true north. Because when we do that, we realize that all of this, all of these events, everything are completely in his command and in his control. I can't imagine ever obeying someone as quickly as people do when Jesus speaks. There's a lot of times where Jesus does this. He says, get up and take your mat and walk. Go to the pool. Go and do these things. People don't question him. They don't argue. They immediately go and do what he says. There must have been something amazing in how he spoke, the impact of those words that he was able to completely command. And they're going, no, i got to do what this guy says. Whether they felt the healing in themselves or whether they, they felt the power of God come out when he spoke, whatever it was, they knew immediately that they had encountered something special. And it's a clear demonstration of God's authority and sovereignty. If we go to John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Why this guy? There's tons of people there. There's a crowd there, so much of a crowd that when Jesus walks away, the guy doesn't know where Jesus goes, doesn't even remember what he looks like. 
I hate it when we bump into God's sovereign will. I hate it when we bump into the throne. When it's like, no, this is God's business. His kingdom. He made it. His business. He, he does it. We have no say. Because this man, he does nothing to deserve this miracle. It's not his faith. It's not his words. It's not his deeds. Nothing he has done earns him this moment with Jesus. Why was this man spared and not the others? Why did Jesus speak to this guy this way and not another? Romans 8, verses 28 through 30 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's a tough question. If you uh, want a, a study in this, circle Romans chapter 9. Put a, a bookmark in there. Because this is Paul's treatise on a lot of, of this stuff. Romans chapters 9, verses 14 through 18 says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us. Turn the page to Ephesians chapter 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, the, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, through Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's good news. Because it means that there's nothing that we can do. We can't earn our salvation, but we also can't lose it. We can't go so far that God just casts us aside. Because God is sovereign, 
We are all under his authority and under his power and under his will. There is no place outside of it. There is no place that we can go or nothing that we can do that sets us outside of his will. But again, it it forces us, doesn't it, to change our perspective to a God-centered perspective, to recognize that he is the king of the universe and that he will do what he will do, and that we can either choose to recognize his authority and submit to his authority and be obedient to his authority or rebel against it. That's our free will decision on our independence day. But that is the true orientation of the reality. Jesus has complete authority over this man's illness. With a word, the man is completely healed to the point that he can get up, take his mat, and walk. Any of us who have had surgery to fix anything would love if this were the case. It's funny, we were talking about it this morning, how more and more surgeries are getting that way, where the same day that you have surgery, you're up and walking and and moving. It's getting better, but generally you still have months, weeks of physical therapy. You still have long-term, still have scars. Jesus' healing is complete. There's none of that. This man is immediately able to get up and take his mat and walk. I will highlight not because of this man's faith, what he does afterwards. We have no idea about his faith. But one thing he does do, he goes to church. Kind of proud of him for that. First thing he does is he goes to the temple. Now remember, for 38 years, this guy has been cast out of society. He's been unable to earn his keep. It means that he's been on the charity for for that long, for 38 years. To re-enter society, he's got a couple of processes in front of him. He's got to go and, and wash He's got to show himself to the priests. He's got to, they'll they'll give him a bird, a small bird, a pigeon for a sacrifice. He's got to wait seven days. He's got to come back to the priests, present himself again. They'll inspect him, make sure that he really is healed. He'll wash again. And then he can re-enter society. He's taken back in. And that's the process he seems to start because he immediately goes in. They spot him carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They're like, hey, why are you carrying your mat? He's like, well, I've been paralyzed for 38 years. This guy told me to get up and carry my mat, so I did. Well, who did it? I don't know. Didn't see the guy. He disappeared in the crowd. But if there's a lesson for us to learn, number one is the importance of the church, of going to church. But also, notice that they have a process. They have a process for people who have been outside of the church to come into the church. Something that we miss quite a bit. We have, generally, we baptize folks. When, when they come in, they become new believers. We have, we have a baptism. And then they're, they're welcomed as brothers and sisters in Christ. But for people who have been away, who have left for various reasons, we don't have a process for reentry. We don't have a process for re-welcoming, especially when people have fallen away or fallen on hard times or, or had something bad happen to them. Generally, people change churches if that's the case their shame and their whatever it is, those barriers come up. Well, I haven't seen those people in in years. I've moved, I've changed jobs, I've done whatever. So generally, they they don't come back to the same church that they went to before. Here, they have a clear process. He presents himself to the priests, sacrifice, seven days, inspected, washed, right back into society. That's something that we can learn. The other thing we can learn is that There's a trend in our society to reject church, to reject religion. And I agree, we've been talking about this the last few weeks, that we need to reject meaningless church and meaningless religion. 
because we are here to offer genuine worship, to offer genuine offerings from the wellspring of our heart. Hebrews 10.25 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. John 5.14 says, we're moving on in our story. It says, Later, Jesus found him at the table and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This made me stop and think aren't these people's reactions bizarre? We have a lot of people that, that we love and care for in our church. We have folks that are hurting that right now, Walt's trying to recover from, from hip surgery. Let me tell you what, when he walks through the door coming into church, I think every one of us are probably going to hug him, hug that long, tall cowboy and, and welcome him back in. If you knew somebody that had been paralyzed, that had been cast out of society, that had been begging for 38 years, what would your reaction be if you saw them walking into church. It tells you the, the status of the hearts of these, these church leaders, of these Pharisees. The first thing they ask him is, why are you carrying your mat? The guy says, well, this guy healed me. And it's not, what? This guy healed you? What? No, no, can he do it again? There's several other people. Can he do that some more? No. It's who? Who did this? How dare they break the Sabbath? How dare they break our rules? Show them to me. And the guy for his own part, he's like, hey man, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. Clearly, he fears their authority. Clearly, he respects these guys because as soon as Jesus comes up to him and says, hey man, stop sinning, repent, turn, change now, what does he do? He doesn't get on his knees and, and thank God. He doesn't go and, and, and do any kind of worship or anything like that. He goes back to the Pharisees and says, there's the guy. There he is. That's the guy who did it. Really? <laughs> not a thank you card? Not a... <laughs> What a bizarre reaction. And it's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to ask questions. That's, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying you have to take everything, you know, on faith. And certainly if that happened in our society, we'd be like, hey, man, just, let's get you checked out by a doctor. Let's make sure that, you know, all of your health stuff is taken care of. You know, we don't want to make sure that this is, that you're really healed, that you're really going to be able to go on forth. If there's anything you need to do to, to make this thing last, Let's find out and, and take care of that. But I can assure you that my reaction is not going to be, well, I don't know, it's been 372 Sundays since we've seen you, so, uh, you know. No. Because our reaction should be to get on our knees and thank God. And we should not miss the purpose of the man's healing. Jesus demonstrate to us and to the man his position, his authority, that's what we're talking about, is Jesus, his position, his authority as Lord and Messiah. We find this throughout scripture, that Jesus taught like no one else, 
and they had complete authority over sickness, disease, and death. We'll find that in, in Matthew 7, 28 through 29. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Luke 19, 48 says the same thing. It says, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. John 15, 24 if I had not done among them the works no one else did, no one else had command over the body like Jesus did, they would not be guilty of sin, as is they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. Matthew 9, 33. While they were going him out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Mark 2, 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. There was a purpose. He was teaching and healing and feeding with a purpose to lead people to repentance, to re lead people to faith. That was the overarching me me message, just what he said to this guy Don't sin anymore, don't keep on sinning. Faith, believe now, repent now. So many of these people, they were, just, they were just fans. They weren't followers. They loved the show, but they couldn't or they wouldn't kneel before God and take him as Lord and Savior. And the Pharisees, they reacted with anger and fear. And I, I know that our, it's a different time and our cultures are, are vastly different. We are not nearly as ritualistic and legalistic as the Jews of that time were. But still, not one of them stopped and gave thanks to God. Not one of them questioned how this is possible. They would go on to accuse Jesus of being a demon-possessed man, that it was in the power of Satan and that he was driving out demons and that he was, that he was healing people. That is not a rational reaction to the action that they witness. They're acting like Jesus injured this guy, not like he healed him. They're acting like he was the one who caused the paralysis. But their anger gives us an opportunity, gives us an opportunity to look under the hood. This is kind of the meat of our message, where we get to see some of the inner workings of the Trinity, and specifically the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That part I understand pretty well. We're headed to verse 19. But when we ask our question, Who is Jesus? Is there any doubt in your mind that he was a real person? Anyone? Has anybody doubt that he was a real person? That when you read this book, when you read these accounts, that he was a real human being who lived at the time we say he lived? Do you think he is just an idea or, or a fictionalized account? See, it's popular right now to attack religion, specifically Christianity, as a mechanism of social control. And is, is that what you think of Jesus? Is he a figurehead? an idea, the basis of a system 
that is used to regulate your behavior and the behavior of others? Do you think he was a prophet? Muslims and Mormons, they believe that Jesus was a prophet, a man like you and me who was a messenger of God, equal with Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. And if that is your belief, go back up just a few verses and read exactly what that says. He just directly claimed to be equal to God. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. That's what he says. But if we, we do some things, and this is what the Muslims and the Mormons do, they remove Paul from the Bible. They reject Paul and his writings as Scripture. And that makes it easier to lower Jesus, to bring being a prophet. And you can get rid of Romans and First and Second Corinthians. But you still have to contend with John. What about the idea of Christianity as a form of social control? Is that why you're here? Is it a form of self-help or self-improvement? Get out the Ten Commandments. Add in baptism, communion, prayer, grab Galatians 5, poof! One well-mannered, happy society coming right up. Those viewpoints reject Jesus' own words about who he is, And they say much more about the desires of the people saying those opinions than about Christ. The thing is that that kind of legalism, the kind of legalism we're seeing from these Pharisees, it's attractive. That's why the the Mormon religion is so attractive. It is. A plus B equals C. I know from step one to step 25 what I have to do. It's easy. The math is simple. I'm an electrician. I know the National Electrical Code. I love it. I do, because it's very clear. Oh, there's a box there. Is there a strap within 36 inches? No, there's not. You know what I know I need to do? I need to put a strap on that. Oh, there's not a cover on that box. You know what I know I need to do? I need to put a cover on it. It says so right in the book. I know exactly what I need to do. And if the inspector comes out, he says, all right, you've broken Article 250, you've broken Article 110, you've broken Article 100, here, here, here. I know exactly what I need to do to fix it so I can pass my next inspection. That is easy math. It's very attractive. It's not a relationship. And that's what we're called to, is we're called to knowing a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Is getting to know him, getting to seek him out, spending time, dedicating some of our time to Christ. That's what he asks for. He says, man, let's have a morning chat, maybe an afternoon chat, maybe an evening chat. That's tough. It's tough to commit yourself to a relationship with Christ, to commit yourself to putting that work into that relationship. Mark 2, 29, it says, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There goes my legalism. There goes my code book. See, we're trying to put boundaries on God. That's what they're trying to do, is they're trying to say, well, you know, 
Ten Commandments, it says, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, and you're breaking the Sabbath. He says, I'm God. If I rested, everything falls apart. I created and sustained all things. I am continuously working. If I wasn't continuously working, you would not be here. I did that so that, number one, my creation, which was good, would be glorified, would be magnified. I rested for a day because what I had done was good before it fell. And then I blessed it. Go in Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I blessed it, and I made it a day for you to take time to rest in me. But imagine the horror show that would happen every Saturday once people got, figured out that God was resting. It would be like the purge every single Saturday. Oh, God's not looking. It's that day again. We can do whatever we want to. He's not at the helm. Let's go. How horrifying would that be? Instead, every single day is the same. It's kind of our, the, the hard thing about Sundays, right, is it's the same as every other day. We have the same opportunity to, to work, to play, to do all of those things. It takes self-discipline in our relationship to take time to do what John Piper says. He says, that's what the Sabbath is for, the restful, focused enjoyment of God. To enjoy God, you have to have a relationship with God. And relationships are hard. They take effort and work. And we are called to a relationship with Christ. And part of that relationship is acknowledging Christ for who he is as the Son of God. Anything else is a rejection of the Bible. And it's a rejection of God himself. See, it's pretty popular right now to be kind of universalist. To think there are multiple paths to God. That, you know, the, he, uh, the Hindus, the, you know, the Muslims, that, you know, we're all worshiping the same God, but, you know, we're just taking different paths. You know what happened to that? The Bible happened to that. It says right here, no one comes to the Father except through me. We're talking about that relationship, God the Father, God the Son, acting together as one. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. If you lower Jesus to being a prophet, you're rejecting God. You're rebelling against God. The thing is that this book is 100% accurate, historically, scientifically, archaeologically. And it is the most scrutinized book in human history. And if you are in doubt about the veracity of the Bible, attack it. Do some research yourself. Millions of people have tried. Go for it. Go after it. Pick a list of names and places and dates from the Bible and find out if they are real. It won't take you long. We just put up a map up here to find tons of secular, third-party sources who will verify the truth of the Bible. And in your Bible, it says that Jesus is the Son of God. John chapter 4, verses 25 through 6. This is the woman at the well. She says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Tough, but very clear. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. If you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 17, we're going to be flipping back to this quite a bit. It's the high priestly prayer. Verses 1 through 5, it says, After Jesus said this, 
He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. We're continuing on. It says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. See, like I say, we're looking at, at the Trinity. We're looking kind of at those nuts and bolts. It says, see, God is one. If we look in our Old Testament, it says that over and over and over again. God is one. But God is also three persons. You go to Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then Jesus quotes this in Mark 12.29. He says the exact same thing. The most important one, answered Jesus, is hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Galatians 3.20 says, A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So God is one, but God is also three separate equal parts. Each part is fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur, he breaks this down into five pieces. I told you we would get here. He says God, is, that Jesus, God and Jesus are equal in five things, and that's what's in our scripture here. And we're going to go through them step by step. In person, in works, in power, in judgment, and glory. Did anybody get that the first time you read this? I sure didn't. <laughs> Thanks, John. So first, equal in person. This is 17 and 18. It says, now that's where he says, My father is always at his word to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. If we flip back to, uh, to Matthew 12, 8, it's right here, we, we just read it, where it says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he says. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We just mentioned this, that that's God blessing the Sabbath. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. God blessed the Sabbath and created the Sabbath. When creation was finished, God looked at it. It was good. God stopped creating. The work of creation was finished. He took a day to rest, enjoy, and focus on his relationship to the creation. Then God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy for us to intentionally rest in God. But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is creator. Jesus is creator. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. And they are equal in works. In this verse 19, it says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because what the Father does, the Son does also. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will all be amazed. Jesus does not misspeak. And this is not an error or a misinterpretation. It is also not a misconception. The people didn't mishear or misunderstand what Jesus said. Believe me, there are times when Jesus corrects and rebukes. Jesus does not do that here. Instead, he doubles down. The people accuse him of claiming equality with God. Right there was his opportunity to say, no, 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 that wasn't what I meant. I'm just a prophet. No, 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 you got me all wrong. He doesn't do that. Instead, he doubles down and says, no, I am the son of God. And then he keeps on going. He says, truly, truly, he emphasizes the truth of what he is saying. He says, he and God are equal. They are parallel and they complete works in parallel. Compare that to John the Baptist, who said what about Jesus? He said, one who is coming, who, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. G- Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoke, spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs." The Father and the Son are in perfect unison in action. John chapter 17, we're just going to do verse 21. It says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Practically, understanding God and Jesus as one in person and in works means what? First of all, we we talked about this before. It means that when you reject Jesus... When you lower him and call him a prophet, when you call him a moral teacher, you are in essence rejecting God. That's what people who are universalists or pluralists, when they say there's more than one path to God, this verse in the Bible takes that out with the garbage. If you believe in God, then you believe in Jesus. There is no other option. And Jesus describes the relationship between the Father and the Son as a relationship of love. That is phileo love, not agape love. It's deep, intimate, all-knowing kind of love. It's the only time that John uses that word phileo. The rest of the time he uses agape. And that brings new meaning to the greatest commandment, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He says, you've got to know me to love me. You've got to be in deep, intimate relationship with me to love me. That's what he's saying. Love God like Jesus loves God. Whew. That's a tall order, isn't it? That gives us some marching orders for Monday, doesn't it? They're equal in power. God and Jesus are equal in power. And we're going to specifically talk about power over life and death. Because this is in verse 21. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he pleases to give it. If we go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, 39, it says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. 
1 Samuel 2. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits with them with princess, and he has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. 2 Kings 5, 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me because to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? Those are statements about God's power over life and death. Then there's some examples of him using that power. We won't go through these because we're, we're running out of time, but 1 Kings chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4, they're both times when God raised people from the dead. Now we can go over to John chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 9, and we can see Jesus doing the exact same thing. We go to, to John chapter 11, that's where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. There's another part where Jesus raises a little boy from the dead without even being in the same town. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 40 says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up the last day. If Jesus is not equal to God in power over life and death, that statement is a lie. If he is not equal to God in his ability to raise people from the dead, all of our belief in Jesus as Savior is a lie. He has to have this power. He has to have power over sin and death. Otherwise, when he went to the cross, it was absolutely meaningless. But he does have power over life and death, and he does have power over sin. And it is equal to the Father. And that is the source of our salvation. John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, when we say there is power in the blood of Jesus to break every chain, we mean it. He has conquered sin and death. He has the power to give life, eternal life. And he is equal to God in judgment. Go to John chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. Just down that little page. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Second Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy place and to be marveled at among all those you who have believed. And this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. 
See, when we talk about Jesus as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, Jesus has to have the power of judgment to be able to condemn and to forgive. The Father and the Son have to be in perfect agreement to forgive and to redeem, to pour out grace. Because if Jesus did not have the power of judgment equal to God, he could scream our innocence all day long. He could say, no, those are mine. But if they're not equal and on the same page, God could just say, "Mm, no. He could pick and choose. God could be separate. Our belief in Jesus could be misplaced. But because they are one, because they act in parallel, because they have the same power, because they are equal, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, when he turns, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He means it and he has the authority to do it. He has the authority to look at that man and forgive his sins. This guy that he heals, he has the authority to look at him and say, stop sinning. If you stop sinning, you will be with me in paradise. If you don't, sorry. It's all over but the crying. John chapter 5, verse 23, it says, they're equal in the power of person, in the works, in the power, in the power over life and death, in judgment, and all of those things lead to our last thing, which is equality in honor, equality in glory. John chapter 5, verse 23 says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you were in your Old Testament, you go, um, excuse me, I believe you read Isaiah 42.8 a few months ago. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 48.11 says the same thing. It says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. But yet, because they are equal, because they are God is one, God is three. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. First Timothy 1. Says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me and abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I think you and I would have a contest there, Paul. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope today's message gave you a deeper understanding 
of who Jesus is, of his character, of his authority, of his relationship in the Trinity. And I hope that it does help shift your perspective to a God-centered perspective that would change how we think about what we say and what we do, that we would center ourselves on God and not on ourselves. It should be weighed and measured in relationship to Christ, not to ourselves or other people, but Christ who has the person, the works, the power, the judgment, the authority, and who is deserving of the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm not worthy of, of your words. I am not worthy of what John has written down here. I lift this message up to you, Father, that, that your word will ring true, that as we go out this week, that we could draw nearer to you, that we could be renewed in our commitment to our relationship to you. Father, I can't help but think about people in our world, people in our town, our, our kids as they head back to school in a month or so. Father, they need you. And quite frankly, I, I seek desperately to partner with you in helping those around us. I want to be on your path. I want this church to be on your path. I want us to be working hard to further your kingdom. It's all yours, Father. This church, this place, these people, it is all yours. Please, come near to us. Speak loudly to us. Give us the provision that we need to help the people around us, that they would hear you and see you and know you, that they would be drawn to you. We ask all of that in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came in all power and authority and still went to the Christ went to the cross for us. He took all of the things that I have done that I have yet to do and took them with him. Thank you, Father. Amen.